It's time for a new revolution in your sports parenting, one that doesn't involve headaches, tears, and heading down the path of unknown. Whether you're trying to get your child into golf, help them play competitively, or have them play at a collegiate level, you're in the right place. This show is for any parent or child who plays golf and wants to build a better team at home and on the course. This is the Raising Golfers Podcast. I am your host, Travis Hauser, PGA professional and father of two young boys. And today we've got an exciting interview with one of my good friends, Chris Odinger. He's the head coach of both the men's and women's golf teams at Holy Names University in the San Francisco Bay Area. Can you send me your upcoming tournament list so that I can follow along? And then what they should do is you should email them your results. So after three tournaments, good or bad, and send them your results. I think the one thing I, I dislike the most is when I'll have a kid only email me when they play good. And it's like, I want to be there for the ups and downs as well. Like I said, when I go to watch a kid, I want to see how they respond to adversity. I also want to see how they respond to a bad tournament. Before coming to college coach, Chris was a great collegiate and professional player, winning two NCAA tournaments and 17 NCAA top tens. He also won 12 times on the professional Pepsi tour and holds a course record of 63 at a course in the San Francisco Bay Area. Today's going to talk about the college recruitment process and what college coaches are looking for in players. And finally, he's going to talk about how to make sure you are being followed by coaches so that they are keeping an eye on you and tracking your progress along the way so that you can get into the college of your dreams. If you're an aspiring college player or have a golfer who wants to play college golf, then this is going to be a great episode for you. All right, Chris, what's up, man? Welcome to the Raising Golfers podcast. How you doing? Doing good, man. Thanks for having me, Travis. Yeah, man. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what's your background? Uh, when did you start playing golf and other sports that you were involved with as a, as a child? Well, um, I grew up in a very athletic family. Uh, sports was a big deal. I kind of grew up in the shadow of my uncles. My father was a, a was a great athlete, had some uh, college football offers, some scholarship offers. Essentially, all my uncles were like 10-time lettermans in high school. <laughs> so my one uncle had won state championship wrestling multiple years. I forget what state. I think Utah. I have another uncle who played college baseball. I think he dabbled in the minors a little bit, but you know he was on scholarship to play baseball. And I got to watch these guys just growing up, just competing all the time with one another. My dad has three brothers, and you can imagine the competition that that brews. So I just wanted to be like them, be competitive and be really athletic. So, I mean, growing up, I was in four or five sports a year. And I remember for me, one of the hardest things was once I got to high school, I had to pick between basketball and wrestling and baseball and golf. And that was a that was a really hard decision at the time. I wasn't wasn't like for sure golf was my best sport, but um, you know, very athletic upbringing. That's cool, man. Yeah, and I believe as far as the competitiveness, because you and I have played a lot of rounds of golf, and I know your competitive nature. So, when did you start transitioning into golf? At what age? And tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So the my story is not exactly what i would recommend to you know up and coming or prospective college golfers we kind of grew up kind of poor we didn't know anything about the recruiting process even how to get into colleges uh because you know my parents hadn't really they hadn't graduated college by that time and uh you know i didn't know how to get recruited i didn't know what sport was going to be best i really didn't have a plan and my parents didn't necessarily have a plan for me either so I didn't start transitioning solely into golf until after I graduated high school. So 
I graduated high school and was really confused and thought, you know, I'd go up to the University of Oregon, uh, enroll, and I would just be able to walk on the golf team. And that's, you know, that's not how it works. And it's funny because I, I say that and I, I've now met a lot of kids who who are not so familiar with recruiting or how to get recruited. And it's kind of just like a, a big black hole for them. And that's kind of what it was for me. So I graduated high school. Um, I ended up working for a couple years. And then at that point, I decided I wanted to focus up on golf, that it was my passion. I had missed sports and I rededicated myself to, to golf. And within a year, I was able to get back enrolled uh, in a junior college in California, Butte College. And then two years after that, I had some scholarship offers to go to, you know, some four-year universities. I had some D1 and D2 offers, but it ended up being that the D2 university was the best fit for me. And so I ended up transferring into Cal State East Bay to play golf. So for me, I, you know, I didn't focus on golf early enough to get picked up in the recruiting process. If I could go back with the knowledge I have now, I would do it a little different, but I really didn't know what to do. And I, you know, I find that that's not abnormal. It does seem like a lot of people don't really know what to do when it comes to getting recruited. That's really interesting because like you said, that's not the norm for how most people are getting into college golf teams. <laughs> Nowadays, kids are starting earlier. They're going through the U.S. Kids Tour. They're playing AJGA tournaments, but your story is quite a bit different. So I'd like to back up just a little bit because obviously you were already somewhat decent at golf, even in high school or even before high school, right? At what point did you find golf interesting and it, you had some passion about it? You know, so later on that triggered in your mind after you graduated from high school that this is something you want to pursue. So in my mind, golf was, you know, it wasn't so cut and clear that it was my number one sport because like my uncles, you know, I had made it a focus to try to letter on a, a lot of different sports in high school. That all rounded athleticism was really valued in my family, or at least that's something I thought was a value in my family. You know, the perspective of a kid. Anyways, I started getting passionate with golf about 12, 11, 12 years old. My father had got out of the military. We had moved to Oregon. And in the summer, I can't remember, maybe sixth grade summer, I did, you know, didn't have a lot of friends, uh, but I did know I liked golf. And there was a golf course about a mile, mile and a half down the road that I could take my bag and walk to. My parents would give me two or four dollars and I'd go up there, buy two tokens of balls, hang out in the chipping and putting green all day long after I'd hit those balls and I would just, you know, stay up there and practice golf. And it was at about that point that I knew that for me, that golf was something that I really enjoyed, you know, but again, it was just another season. So golf was the summer season uh, when I wasn't playing baseball. Right. And I would say, you know, probably junior and senior year in high school um, when our team, our team ended up taking third at state. My, my senior year, we were a very strong team. And I think I was like a plus, 0.3 handicap that year and I bounced back and forth between second and third on my high school team so it was a very competitive team I think three of the athletes went d1 uh, golf and then of course I came went later to college but yeah there was no in my family there was no pressure to single up on sports and so you know again if I could do it different I would go back and play all the sports that I had, but about junior year, really start making more concerted effort to show the focus on golf and make it a year round thing. Even though I was playing other sports, I would still play football and other sports, but, you know, I would have golf tournaments year round versus, you know, only during the high school season. And then again, you know, kind of rehash a little bit what I said earlier, we didn't know much about the recruiting process. So outside of high school golf, I probably played 
I only played one tournament per year, and it was the city championship that was hosted, the junior city championship that was hosted at the course I grew up on in Medford, Oregon. That's amazing. I know how good a golfer you are because we played a lot of golf together, like I mentioned. And I also know that you're good at other sports. We've even had the pleasure of playing some basketball together. Do you think that growing up in that type of household, playing multiple sports really did have a positive influence on the quality of your your golf? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, just being in a competitive environment, my father is so competitive. And of course, I'd like to think I'd take it to another level. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if I'd like to think that. I, I know that I do <laughs> take it to another level because right. my family tells me all the time uh, how competitive I am. And I, of course, I bring that to my coaching as well. But I think in the end, you know, we'll talk about golf later, I guess, but golf is a game and a lot of people get out there and they're so caught in the weeds and technique how they're supposed to swing the club and how they're supposed to play and in the end it's it's a game that the goal is to get the ball in the holes as few strokes as possible and to do it in as less strokes than your competitors and so just being in an environment where competitiveness is embraced and encouraged helped me with my golf because you know I'm out there <laughs> less focused on technique and really trying to focus on how do I win the game And I think in the end, you know, that's how golf needs to be approached. We tend to have more fun with it when we're focused on those types of things rather than caught in the weeds with technique, you know? Absolutely. Now you're playing college golf. Yes. And tell us a little bit about your experience playing golf on the golf team and competing at a collegiate level. Okay. So it's, it's an interesting start because I transferred in, didn't know too much about the coach of the program. My recruiting, the recruiting process for me was essentially... I sent in my resume, said, looks good, come for a visit. I came down. There was no wine and dining, but there really wasn't. The recruiting process was very empty. So I ended up, you know, doing that with a couple universities, Chico State. I was looking at UCSD. But anyways, we ended up there because it was the best fit for me and, you know, my which my fiance at the time. I guess she was my girlfriend at the time, but we were long-term. And so it ended up being the best fit for us. So the, the recruiting process was where it blank. We ended up just picking a university that was the best fit for us. No university was really like telling me to come. Anyway, so when we got there, he wanted me, the coach of the university, I had just qualified for a USGA amateur, and he wanted me to withdraw so that I could be there for team qualifying. And I remember thinking like, man, you know, I'm a little older than most college athletes, uh, I transferred in at 21 and I remember thinking, man, you know, I've been improving my game and chasing the dream without the team. If they're going to, you know, block me from chasing my passions and playing national championships, which is what USGA events are. We all know USGA events are the top amateur events in the world. Right. So I remember thinking, man, maybe I'm not going to play college golf. So anyways, I ended up missing the first qualifier. Coach doesn't take me to the first tournament. And that kind of got my college experience off to a rough start. That's interesting. But luckily we got back and I ended up ended up getting working my way into the lineup. The second qualifier out there, I ended up I won our the qualifier for the second tournament. I got in the tournament and I was our low finisher. And then after that I pretty I played in every tournament and really I would do the initial qualifyings, but I never truly had to qualify anymore. So, you know, I played in every tournament and I'd say from that point on it was it was nice. But, you know, my coach in college I kind of saw more as like a friend and not so much somebody that was a coach. And it's it's weird to say that now because we're really we're good friends, me and that coach. And without him, I wouldn't be coaching now. He was the one that encouraged me to kind of get into coaching. He thought I would be good at it. But my experience wasn't great in the beginning. But then he, you know, made me team captain and I was able to help build the culture a little bit and um, at least of that team that I was on. And then from there, you know, after after we got through the first fall season, I felt more at home. And to be honest with you, 
my team was a little bit older. So even though I was older than the traditional college athlete that year, most of our team was right around my same age, 21, 22, 23. And so our culture compared to, you know, I say this as a coach. So I've seen four or five classes come through as a head coach. Our culture was much different as we were older, more focused, able to really know what we wanted to get out of our golf versus some of these younger teams where, you know, they're off to college to try to have fun, to have that quote unquote college experience. Right. So D1 is all about, you know, you're trying to like groom professional athletes is the way we think about it. There's all the priorities on athletics. Um, D2 is like one foot in both, uh, one in, you know, one in athletics and one in, in uh, academics. And so it's kind of more of the balance. And then D3 is, you know, they can't even give out athletic scholarships. So it's really heavily based towards academics. And, you know, at D2s, which is where I was, the players really set the culture a lot. And luckily we were older and we knew that we really wanted to focus on our sport. And so we were able to have a culture that where guys were out practicing all the time, trying to get better so that we could maximize our season, which was a great experience. And it it definitely pushed me to get better and prepared me to make that little jump that I made from college golf to mini tour golf, lower level professional tournaments right after. Yeah, I'd say that's the ideal environment to be in. From your experience as a player playing collegiate golf, what was something that you learned about being a player at a collegiate level? Maybe something you didn't even know about before getting into it that now you think about and has helped you coach the players that you coach now? There's two things, good and bad. You know, the first, I think when I first got to college, I was a little shocked. I thought it was going to be a, a bigger deal than it was. And so one of the things that surprised me is when we were going to tournaments, we weren't going to always the nicest course and we weren't always getting to play in nice conditions. Um, And in fact, you have to play in just crazy conditions all the time because we play at the end of the fall and in the beginning of spring where the weather is the most questionable. And so you get crazy weather conditions played on some spotty courses, you know, where the grass conditions maybe aren't the best or the green conditions aren't the best. But yet you still got to find a way to go out there and score. You know, before then I had traveled a bit to play, but mostly in my local area. And I was able, you know, I knew most of the courses I was getting on. When you travel for college golf, you're going to other states, seeing courses that you haven't even heard of before. Right. Yeah. And you're expected to go out there and score on in these tough conditions, patchy conditions. You know, and I just thought once I got to college, everything would be, you know, I think every golfer thinks this as they move up levels, they think that the next level of conditions, the courses are going to play are just going to be phenomenal. And honestly, it really doesn't that that never comes to fruition until you get to the PGA. That's quite interesting. Even when you're playing mini tours around, there's going to be, you know, you're going to play, shoot, I played some, some Pepsi tour events on some just absolute dog tracks (laughs) where we were playing a hard pan and, you know, you're, you're just hitting low spinning shots off parking all the time because conditions aren't great. But so that was the first the first takeaway I got was, man, you know, we're playing all sorts of courses and crazy conditions. And, you know, also the fact that when, you, you know, Division two and Division one will play 18 on Sunday, 36 on Monday and 18 on Tuesday. So you play 72 holes and 48 hours kind of because you start the practice round in the afternoon on Sunday and that final round, the round three tees off early and Tuesday. So you really do play 72 holes in 48 hours. And that's definitely something that people aren't going to do on their own. <laughs> that's a lot of golf. And so I had to have my body prepared for that, which I definitely wasn't prepared for before I got up to that level. 
Is there anything that you could advise for players who want to get into college golf that they could prepare for something like that where they're actually going to be playing a lot more golf than they have been, you know, where they can train themselves more physically, even mentally to prepare themselves for that type of environment? Yeah, I don't think that junior golfers necessarily need to start doing that when they're 14, 15, 16, you know, even 17. But I would say I'm big on simulating play and practice. So, for example, when it comes to going out to practice, you know, your short game, I think games, you know, not sitting there hitting 20 balls to one target is the best way to practice. The best way to practice is something that simulates on course. You know, obviously you'll do those 20 balls when you want to work on technique, but if you want to translate to playing well, you know, you need to play games like up and down, you know, where you chip and putt at the same time, you know, twos a par and you play as many holes as you can, trying to make as many pars or birdies as you can and not make bogeys, right? That simulates real golf. And so when it comes to preparing to play 72 holes in 48 hours, I just, you know, we do it once a week or every other week when we go to tournaments in college. And so I think if you want to prepare for that, the summer you're heading into college, you start mixing that in once a week or every other week. So, you know, you have your practice on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, maybe go play 18 holes one of those days. But then when you find a two-day stretch where you can play back-to-back 36 holes, that way you can kind of get the feel under your feet, what that feels like on your body. Um, and then it's always good to have a goal when you're not in the tournament, of course. So, you know, you want to make yourself a, you know, if it's your home course and, you know, you consistently shoot two over on your home course, you know, you want to push yourself a little bit and say, you know, after, after 72 holes, the winning score is going to be six under par. Something that's attainable, you know, because if your average course two over, you've shot under par probably before. And so you want to force yourself, you know, push yourself to, to score well and imagine it being harder than it is. And call it in D2, not always is the winning score uh, six or eight under par. Sometimes it is. But anyways, you have your mind in that competitive environment while you're playing back-to-back 36 holes days. And then, you know, you've also, you're doing it. So then when you get to college, you know, when you have to play 72 holes in 48 hours, it's something you've done. You've done it more than once. You've done it recently. So, you know, it's something that you can overcome. That's awesome. I love that advice. I totally agree. I think that kids could simulate real play a lot more in their practice than just like you said, out there banging balls and, you know, trying to fine tune their technique so much. And going back to what you said earlier is that golf's a game, right? You got to get the ball in the hole and you got to figure out how to beat the golf course and score the lowest, right? 100%. I see it all the time now. And I've just started instructing too, where I'm instructing outside of the the college setting. Like I've been doing lessons on the side. And it's very interesting to watch people practice and even junior golfers practice. It's when they're on the driving range or on the chipping green, it's almost like it's, it's a different game than what you play on the golf course. And I get these questions all the time where people are wondering why they hit it so well on the range or they chip so well on the chipping green. And then when they go to the golf course, it doesn't translate. And Almost every time my first question is, you know, do you practice like you play? And of course, I always get the question, what do you mean? (laughs) And do you practice with consequences? And the thing is, on the golf course, when you hit shots, you know, there's a consequence if you hit a bad one. And that usually overcomes our mental. If you're practicing that way, aware of consequences or, you know, for example, you have to make five three footers in a row or six footers in a row before you leave, leave the putting green. Well, now there's a consequence that translates better to the golf course rather than sitting there working on is my right elbow tucking into my hip as I'm coming down to impact? You know, <laughs> when you get on the golf course, you don't have time to think about that technique. You only have time to think about, you know, where, what's the target and how are you going to get there? 
Man, I could not agree more with what you just said there. It's it's not just in the United States. I mean, as you know, I've coached golf in China as well. And I just see, unfortunately, what I think is the wrong type of preparation and practice for most people that are out there. So that was great advice and just total gold for those who are listening to help your kids with practice sessions and preparation before you go play or even just playing a tournament. So that's awesome. Just tell us briefly, how did you transition out of college golf and then move into the role that you are in now? as a college golf coach? So graduating college, I wanted to play professional golf, plan 1A, and I knew I loved the college setting. My college coach was telling me that I should you know, think about coaching as well. And so he brought me on, and this ended up being a plan 1B, is I would be a college golf coach if, if it didn't work out, you know, if the right opportunity came along. He put me down as a, had me in as a volunteer assistant that first year after I graduated at Cal State East Bay under Coach Sue there. And he would have me run practices when he was gone traveling with the team. Uh, he has a, an assistant on staff. And so he coaches both the men and the women. And so certain weeks, both teams are gone. And if I was in town or didn't have a tournament, he'd have me run practice, which was great for me because I got to work with, you know, elite players. Anybody that's playing college golf, you can or D2 or 1D1, you know, you can count them as elite amateurs. They're better than 98% of golfers out there. <laughs> so getting to work with elite amateurs who have high goals. And the great thing was I was working with kids who maybe missed the travel roster. And so their immediate goal was to like improve for the next tournament, next qualifying so they can make the next travel roster. And so I, I found out running those practices, I really enjoyed it a lot. And, you know, it's interesting because I just graduated. So the main way I coached at that time was through modeling. I would practice with them. I would show them how I practice. We'd go out and play. They'd watch me. I would challenge them. And I knew I loved that setting. I just love the competitive environment. Pretty much all I've ever known. Right. I knew I liked it. And I, you know, kept telling coach Sue that I liked it. And even though I was still pursuing professional golf and I played there for four years, you know, every year I was asking coach Sue if I could get, you know, onto paid staff. Uh, he unfortunately, he never had a position because he had his paid assistant, but I was always, you know, in his ear because I was really enjoying that. I wanted to do a little more and more with the team. And then finally, as you know, I had traveled to Asia and had was playing over there on the Philippine tour. And I had come back and a, a job had opened up. Holy Names University, where I coach now, and I was right in between when the, when I heard about the job, I was like, no way I'm still playing golf. I'm not ready. But then I had had a falling out with my sponsor and I was, you know, was thinking, you know, coaching is something that I have absolutely loved when I've done it. And so I jumped for it. Luckily my resume was tailored perfectly for it. Thanks to coach Sue having me on as a volunteer assistant coach. If anybody wants to be a coach, the, the easiest ways to become a, a collegiate NCAA coach is have played in the NC2A, have a professional resume have coaching experience. And because Coach Sue had had me as a volunteer assistant there for three or four years, I had all of the above. And when I applied for the Holy Names position, I had a lot of people locally, the previous head coach, uh, people at East Bay call over for me. And that's how I was able to move into that role of coach. That's awesome. Now you coach both the men's and the women's team at Holy Names University. Is that right? That's correct. What kind of expectations do you have now for your players based on what you learned as a collegiate player and also some of the things that you saw when you were volunteering for Cal State East Bay? My expectations are always that when they come, when they're at a team practice or team workout, that I'm getting 100% commitment. I'm a Division II golf coach, so I realize, again, my athletes have one foot in academics and one foot in sports 
in their in their golf. Um, and so my expectation is that when they come to a team setting, I get 100% focus, 100% effort so that we can maximize the amount of time we get. Uh, in the NC2A at Division II, we're only allowed to practice up to 20 hours a week. So that includes video lessons, practicing on the golf course, playing on the golf course, workouts, conditioning, any of that stuff. So, you know, we don't have a lot of time. If you're going to be a top team, I tell this to my recruits too, the ones that, you know, have the the very lofty goals that if you're going to come in and you want to be a top player in the nation or a top team in the nation, nobody's going to get, get there by practicing 20 hours a week. Absolutely. So it takes more dedication than that. But my expectations are that, you know, when we're at team practices and team events that I'm getting 100% from them. I do expect them to go practice on their own. I can't enforce that though. And then I expect them to, to my expectations that they, everything they do for the team, you know, enhances the team experience. We just really don't want anybody to take away from others on the team. Uh, Coming to college is a special time and it's, it's a unique time where adults get to young adults find themselves, get to find their passions and chase their passions. And I, I just think, you know, when we're in the team culture, we really want people around us who are going to boost us and we'll have synergies rather than any type of conflicts. And I know that's hard to do when we have groups, such large groups. You know, I some years have 14 men and 10 women, so I have 24 athletes all around. And of course, when you have a bigger group, there always tends to be some smaller groups. But I think as long as we realize that we're a family and even though there are differences between us, if we're all chasing the same the same goal, which is to get that piece of paper, the graduate college, and to have the most successful golf team possible. So we just want to make sure we have a real encouraging environment. So in short, I really want them, you know, my expectation is that they encourage their teammates and not, you know, detract from what they're trying to do. I think that's an aspect that we'll probably touch on here shortly, but it's something that can be missed, especially in a sport like golf where it's an individual sport. But when you move on to a collegiate level and you're on a team, I think that team dynamic is so important to the success of the team. Yeah, you're 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 right on. Golf is an individual sport that we play in the team setting and I I do I do always I do say this to my players, you know, what's best for the individual on the golf course is best for the team. But that's only on the golf course. When it comes to traveling to and from, what's best for the for the team is what's going to be best for all of us, right? And so it's you don't separate the individual when we're doing everything else except playing in the tournament. And the best teams I've had always have good have had good chemistry and play for each other. And I would say that included, you know, my women's team last year is the best women's team I've had. Uh, and they were, you know, unfortunately, the season was cut short due to COVID. But that's the best women's team I've had. And they had they were had great leadership. And that was the best chemistry I'd seen on a team. Um, and then on the men's side, you know, a couple of years ago when the men's team qualified for nationals, which was unheard of from Holy Names. And the main reason is, and it's not even me, it's because those guys worked hard. They worked together and they had a common goal and they had started a thread chat the year before. What season was that? 2017, 2018 national champions. And every time they texted each other for a full year, they got to see that name on the top of the thread. So they were focused, they had chemistry and they pushed each other. And no surprise, those two teams that went, my women's team from last year and the men's team from that year we qualified for nationals were the best teams. Because they had that chemistry. You know, it's interesting because from my coaching experience, it's one of those things where, you know, if you look at some of the top coaches in the world or some of the top coaching programs that you see around the world, the coach is good and they're an important role. Don't get me wrong. I am a golf coach. That's what I do for a profession. But having an environment for these players to thrive in and that environment includes their peers mostly and having such a positive environment. I mean, you can't even explain how important that is for the growth and development of the players. 
you you know this already. There's there's five areas of golf, right? You got the 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 physical, the technical, the emotional, behavioral, and either way. But the point is, sixty percent of those the five parts of the game is things other than technique or meant, you know, <laughs> or, or focusing on the game itself. It's behavioral and social and emotional. And so when you have a good team around you, you know, you're you're more likely to have your emotions in check. You're more likely to be in a, a homeostatic place with your behavior and the way you feel. And so the, all of that leads to, to good golf. And I say this to juniors a lot. I wouldn't say juniors. I say this to young adults, to my, my college athletes is, you know, things off the course can bleed into golf. And, you know, you see guys at the top level or the PGA Tours, and they're really good about separating the rest of their life and, and having and being able to, to keep shut all that out and be able to focus on their golf. But for most people, that's hard to do. And when you're having problems off the course, they bleed into your mental when you're on the golf course. If you have all your ducks in a row off the golf course, it really allows you to free yourself and focus on golf when you get there. If you're having issues off the golf course um, or, you know, if you're having issues with somebody on your team and you get in the golf course and maybe you see them across the golf course and you have a negative thought and it brings you down a little bit you know, that's probably going to have a small impact on how you play. And things with golf or any sports, when things go south on your sporting field, it's interesting how if we lose our mental, it can kind of snowball. So it's funny how a little thing off the golf course can bleed into a big thing on the golf course. That makes any sense. Absolutely. I mean, I think it even happens to your recreational golfer, right? Where, you know, they might have some problems with work or some problems at home and then they go out on the golf course and they take it out on the golf ball. And unfortunately, the round probably doesn't go the direction they want it to. So I would totally agree with what you said there. You know, if you could share a story from your coaching experience about some player that you had, either from the men's or the women's golf team, that really made some serious improvement, and maybe the improvement wasn't over a short period of time. It could have been from one season to the next or from the beginning of the season to the end. I think that would be great for the parents to hear because as parents, we want our kids to thrive. We want our kids to improve. We want them to be the best, right? But sometimes we get lost and a little delusional about how quick that process really is and forget that it actually does take some time. But there will be times when they are playing not as well as you'd like. Their performance is low. Your expectations aren't being met as a parent. The expectations expectations of the player aren't being met, but because they stick to that process and eventually they get to the result that they're looking for or their improvement all of a sudden starts to show. Could you share a story about some experience you've had as a coach with one of your players that's gone through something similar like that? So Ross Brownlee, he ended up being, he ended up, he was like third or fourth man on the team that year when we ended up going to nationals on that men's team. The season before that was my first season. And he was in the fall, so college division two and division one, we have a fall season and then a spring season. Okay. And so in the fall season you play usually three or four events. In the spring you play six, maybe seven. Some some teams will play five. Okay. And Ross was not making our travel lineup in that fall. And a little, you know, knowledge on him is he has a very unique swing. Okay. So the way he plays golf and the way he attacks golf courses is going to be different than, say, you know, somebody who's got a very standard swing and plays very straight ball flight, let's put it that way. Okay, so Ross played a, he has a, a different move, plays a big kind of swooping hook, at least when I first meet him. And he's just not make, making our, our lineup. And so we get into the section of the fall where we're able to we practice for three, four weeks where there's no tournaments at the very end. It's right before Thanksgiving. And we're just talking. I remember, you know, telling him I was telling him things I thought he needed to fix with his swing if he wanted to play better. 
But I remember us also talking about he needed to find a way to play the game that he had. And I would love to take credit for him improving. But in all reality, what ended up happening with Ross is it's a break. You know, guys on the team are texting me all the time or I'm hearing from guys on the team. And what I keep hearing is, man, Ross is working his butt off this winter. <laughs> so, you know, I'm hearing this a lot. I'm thinking, OK, that's great. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, man, I hope he fixes his swing. Right. <laughs> and uh, what ends up happening what ends up happening is we get back from winter break and Ross's swing has, I would say, you know, from a technique standpoint, OK, hadn't improved all that much. Well, what had become different is his like intention and you could see a different level of confidence and commitment. And so while, yes, his swing had changed, and I would say, you know, from a technical standpoint, he had much better tempo when he came back. His confidence, in my opinion, his confidence level had risen so much that he was able to, you know, stay calm under pressure in qualifying and in tournaments so that his tempo would stay much more consistent because of that confidence. But he worked his butt off that winter practicing his short game so that there wasn't so much pressure on his approach shots and then worked a lot on his swing and his tempo. And when he came back, he worked, he was a staple in our lineup. And why I bring that up is without him, we don't make it to nationals because he was the third or fourth guy. And without him making that big jump that he made, uh, I mean, I can't quantify it, but if I had to guess, it was probably on average of two to three strokes around he made a jump, you know, and over a three round tournament, that's you know, six to nine strokes, right? That's, that's amazing. A, team. <laughs> a lot of tournaments are decided by one stroke. And those of you playing tournaments know what I'm talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, you'll probably experience it down the road. Absolutely. So one stroke means everything. And eight to nine strokes is huge in a team setting. Anyway, so that's Ross. Uh, now that's a. I always think I. I love to think about about how he improved so rapidly and what he did for that team. Don't keep in mind there were other members on that team that had to improve as well, but his jump was bigger than the rest. I think that's huge because you know a lot of people get so caught up on how the golf swing looks and how their kids' swing needs to look like Rory McIlroy's and how the, yeah. the parent hopes that the coach can have this total transformation of the golf swing, right? And and there are some stories of where that's happened, but the reality is that usually there's some other aspect of their game that can improve a lot as well. And another part of it is like what you said, the hard work, right? And if you look at the PGA Tour now, there's so many different ways the guys swing the club and they all get it done, don't they? So I think that's a great story for listeners because I think there's a lot of different ways you can swing the golf club to get it done. And to be honest, I don't think it's necessarily the first thing that you have to look after when you're trying to improve your golf game. I think there's so many other aspects and going back to hard work and building the confidence up is something that's huge. And it sounds like you guided him in the right direction to build his his game up in that area, which was in the end, a huge success for just for the whole team. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would like to really give all the credit to Ross. I would like to think I had a hand or motivated or encouraged him a little bit, but that guy earned it on his own through that hard work. That's amazing. Let's transition now into the start of the recruitment process. I think a lot of parents whose kids are getting out of middle school, entering high school are starting to wonder and even worry about how they can help their kids with the recruitment process. So the first thing we're going to talk about is college scholarships. Are they easy to get? Well, it, de it depends. Getting the full ride scholarship, those are hard to get. It is not that difficult to get some level of scholarship. Every institution's different. Where you're looking to go to college is different. And you know, if you're going to go to say a state school that's much cheaper, maybe you don't need a scholarship to to go there, right? And afford it. But if you're going to go to a private school that's 52000 a year, they could maybe offer you $15,000 of athletic scholarship, 
but maybe it's cheaper to go to the state school even with that even without getting a scholarship at the state school it is it is it is easy to get scholarship if you're looking at the right institutions if you're a you know your talent is that of you know maybe a low end d2 school it's going to be really hard for you to get a, a d1 scholarship right <laughs> but if you're a, a what looks like you'd be a low end D1 high end D2 player, you can probably look at most of the D2s around the nation and get some level of scholarship. But I will say, you know, getting a, a full ride scholarships, those are very hard to get and there's not as many out there as what people think. So if you're a parent and you're trying to chase one of those full rides, is there a chance that you might miss other opportunities out there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I Everyone wants to say their kid went to college on a full ride, right? But I think what's more important is that your your kid goes to a university that is right for them. They're going to have a good experience. It matches their values. And when I say that, the values of the university or the values of the coach in the program match the values of the student athlete and that family. That's more important. You know, if you go somewhere only for the money. Well, this school, they're offering me 20,000. This school, they're offering me 10, blah, blah, blah. I mean, in the end, it's total cost that matters, right? But this school's offering me 20 and this offers me 10. I'm going to the school that offers me 20. But what if, what if it's just a terrible fit? And I've seen this before where a kid thinks they're getting into something that is not, you know, it's not exactly what they're expecting. And now all of a sudden they don't want to be there anymore. Even though they're getting a ton of scholarship, it's just not the fit for them. And if you go to one university and you get a ton of scholarship and it's not the right fit, well, that's that could be enough to drive that that a young adult out of collegiate sports. Um, they could have such a bad taste in their mouth from that year that maybe now they don't want to play college sport. And your dream of having your kid be on scholarship four years at a university is out the window because you went for more money at a university that wasn't a good fit. Now the child doesn't even want to play college sports anymore. What kind of questions should a player or a parent be asking before selecting a college to go to? Well, I think just what comes natural. First, I would say what comes, what's definitely, you know, on the mind. So parents, I think, should be involved in the recruiting process, although they, I think the, the child should lead the way. But the parents should be involved to help guide them in their questions. And of course, questions like, what are, how do I get into the university? What does the schedule look like? What do you guys practice? And obviously, every coach is going to, they're, they're selling their team, right? If they're talking to you, then they're interested. So they're going to sell you their program. They're going to say good things about their team, good things about the university. But if I'm a parent and I'm a, and I'm a student athlete or a recruit, I want to talk to the players on the team. I want to ask them, what's the culture like on the team? How often does coach run practices? How's communication? Did coach give you everything that he promised you? Like, did he promise you $15,000 in scholarship? And then when you ended up getting your or did coach tell you it was only going to cost you $15,000 a year to go to school? And then when you got here, it ended up costing 20, you know, those type of things. The players are, are where I would direct. And it's funny I say that because I don't have enough recruits want to talk to my players. I'm the one that usually brings them to campus and then introduce them to the team. And then I'll send them, you know, I, I'm big on kind of sending, I'll separate the, the recruit from the parents and I'll talk to the parents and I'll send the recruit up with my players in the dorms so that the players can kind of, get the feel from my players what the sorry what the recruit can get a feel from my players what the team environment is like ask those questions they really wanted to ask uh, that they couldn't ask when mom and dad were around those types of things so I really think the focus should be somehow talking to the, the athletes on the team already so you can get a better idea of what's actually going on 
Yeah, I would say just the power of networking there, isn't it? I mean, it's even a good life skill for the kids to start that so early where they can talk to other kids who are already doing what they want to be doing and getting answers they want to. 100%. I mean, I think about myself even professionally, and there's so many questions I wished I would have asked before I took on a job. And if I had asked those questions, I probably would have steered <laughs> myself to, to other places, right? So I think it's a great life skill to have early on. Can a kid, if they start at a D2, D3 school, is there any opportunity for them to transfer during their collegiate career to a D1 school? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're going to have to come in and, and play really well to move up levels, but it absolutely can be done. And, you know, being at D2 and being competitive like I am, I'm always trying to bring in, you know, borderline D2, D1 players. So I, I bring in kids all the time that want to play two years at the D2 and then transfer up to the D1. But I tell them every time, you know, you got to play like a D1 player. And if you look at the D1 schools, what they're putting up in tournaments, they're putting up some really low scores. And so that means you got to come into the D2 setting and, and play really well. And, you know, maybe dominate's not the right word, but you need to be there, you know, every tournament competing for that win or at least in contention. And that's what the D1s are going to want to see. But you can absolutely make that jump. There's kids that do it every year, but the... Uh, the one thing to be aware of that is I get D1 kids every year wanting to transfer into my D2 university because they get to the D1 level and they realize it's not what they wanted. So yes, you can go D2 and D3 and move up divisions, but if you overshoot, you'll see a lot of kids move back from D1 to D2 for the more, the experience they want. That's really interesting. So if you're a kid and you you have this ambition to play collegiate golf, when is a good time for a player to start preparing for college golf? I would say as soon as they're focused enough, got to come from the kid, you know, when they decide they want to play college golf, well, then at that point, you know, if they're willing, ready to focus on that sport, well, then it's really not too early. So if they're 12 years old and they're decided they, they want to play golf at the highest level, then it's not, they can focus up on it. But I would say if you're 12 years old and you're focused on playing as many sports and it's a social thing for you and your parent making you focus up on that sport, well, that's probably too soon. It's going to become a job for them. So there's no one age where it's it started. It all starts with the kid, their focus level, you know, when are the, when do they become goal oriented? And for, you know, we all mature at different ages and we all become goal oriented at different ages. Right. Right. So, uh, the real question here is once they decide <laughs> that they want to play college golf, you know, how do you move forward from there? And if, you know, they start at 12 years old, then if they've decided they want to play college golf at 12 years old, then they need to be entering in the proper tournaments that college coaches are going to be looking at. If that kid decides it at 16, well, that's no different. They need to start entering those tournaments that college coaches are going to look at. Playing the little club events, you know, some courses will put on junior tournaments for just the juniors at that golf course. College coaches aren't going to see those tournaments. So once you decide, I don't know if it's really there's a right age, it's just once you decide, then you want to start playing tournaments that coaches will be able to see the results. Absolutely. I had the pleasure of caddying for a junior golfer who played in the U.S. Junior Amateur Qualifier. And there were a lot of college coaches there watching the players. And I think something that parents are very curious about is when coaches do go to tournaments to watch players, what are they looking for in a player? Are they looking for how strong they are mentally, their skills, their technique? What is it that a coach is looking for when they're watching a player in a tournament? Well, every coach is going to be different. We all have our own unique value system and different priorities, right? When I go to a golf tournament, I'm really looking to see how that, the first and foremost is I want to see how that kid behaves out there. You know, uh, I think when you, <laughs> every round of golf, well, it is possible, but most every round of golf, there's some adversity along the way. 
right? And I want to see how that kid's going to react to adversity, mainly because when they come to college, we're going to, we play a long season. It's year round. You're going to have ups and downs. And I want to see how you respond to the downs. Secondly, I'm trying to see if the kid's a gamer. And when I say gamer, it's kind of what we talked about earlier. Does the kid, is he out there playing technique? Is he constantly working on his backswing while he's playing, you know, while he's practicing in between shots? Is he constantly like working on his technique or is he really out there singularly focused on the hole and how he gets the ball there? And usually the way people respond to bad shots, you you can tell this because when they hit a bad shot, the rest, you know, the rest of the way they're working on their technique, whereas a gamer, as I like to call it, is going to go. He does. It doesn't matter how bad their swing is because they're out there playing different shots and they're going to find some sort of shot shape for the day that works. That's what I'm looking for. And in fact, I don't even expect my the players when I go to watch them play to play great. Quite frankly, almost every time I go to watch a recruit, I, I set it up in advance. Usually, I usually don't just show up on the first tee while they're there at the tournament, you know, and they're like, oh, coach came. Usually, it's, I'm going to come to this tournament, this date, and they know I'm going to come. And nine out of 10 times, they play worse than their average because, you know, that extra pressure from having coach there. And, and I can understand that because, for those kids, the future is so unknown for them and their perspective is so different being a junior that they think I'm coming in with some sort of crazy knowledge and I'm picking apart their everything about them while they're out there playing. And, you know, I'm just a person. So I'm out there just trying to see those few things. Do they respond to adversity well? Do they carry themselves well? And are they out there playing the game or are they playing technique? And then, of course, there is always the skills assessment, which I do assess a little bit. But if I've come to watch you, I've, I've invested my time in traveling out there. I've already invested time in looking at how you, your scores. I'm not going to come out and watch you if I'm not, you know, if I don't think that you're at the level. I don't usually start the recruiting process by showing up at a tournament to say, I know they're good enough if I went out there. It's really more or less to see who they are as a person. And like I said, how they play the game. I think if parents and junior golfers knew what you just said there, I think when they were playing in tournaments and the coaches are watching, I think they would be more themselves knowing that, first of all, coaches, they know golf. They know that you have good days. They know you have bad days. And they want to see how you actually handle yourself in those situations, right? And I think okay. parents and kids get so caught up with the idea that the coach is there and they have to perform the best in front of that coach at that moment. But the reality is we're playing golf. It doesn't work that way. Right. You know, I look I look back to when I, you know, like I told you, I when I was coming out of high school, I had no clue what the recruiting process was. And I remember being at a, you know, we were a, a North Medford High School. We were a top, top team in the state my senior year. And I remember being at this tournament was a, I think it was like a top, the top 20 teams from the previous state tournament result were invited. So we were invited. And I remember the Oregon State coaches out there watching another player that I'm playing with. You know, I hear that he's there and I start bogey double and then playing terrible. You know, he's not even out there to see me. It's so funny to think about now. I made something out of nothing. But anyways, you know, then I follow Birdie and then Eagle. He disappeared when he disappeared and he shows up again. I start playing bad. Well, sitting from where I sit now. That coach was, he maybe noticed me out there, but he was never paying attention to me. He was out there to, to watch the kids that he was already recruiting in the pipeline. The D1 golf coach isn't going to show up and just, unless you're a world beater, just start plucking senior seniors from high school to come on his team. And so I threw away some strokes in that tournament for no reason because that, that coach wasn't necessarily paying attention to me. He wouldn't notice me, but he wasn't there to recruit me. And so I put way too much pressure on myself to perform when it was unnecessary. That's funny, yeah. And that's the reality though, isn't it? Unfortunately, that's a great story there. So when would be a good time for players to start contacting college coaches? We can't start talking to kids until 
was it June 15th preceding their junior year. You can call me and email me as much as you want as a freshman or a sophomore, but I can't email you back or call you back until you're a junior in high school. And so I think if you want to go D1, if you want to go to a very competitive D1, you one, you better already be competing at a very high level. D1s, you probably want to be competing at a high level regionally and or nationally, okay? Or at least in your state, like you want to be a top golfer in your state by the time you're a freshman, sophomore year in high school. And you want to start emailing those coaches right away, freshman, sophomore year in high school. That way they can start tracking you. You may think a coach isn't paying attention to you, but they have you on a list and they're following your results. And and uh, even though they're not responding, they're, they're following you with those freshman and sophomore years. And then when it, you get up to a junior, then they can contact you. But I will say, you know, so many kids contact me for their freshman and sophomore year. And while I'm tracking them, a lot of them have changed their plans by the time they get to their junior year. So I also wait for them to then contact me after they've already... Um, and keep in mind, I'm at a D2. So where I sit, the types of players I recruit are more in the middle. They're not the top end players regionally or nationally, usually. If I can get one of those, that's great. But, you know, I then wait for them to contact me again. And I go, okay, great. I've been following this kid for a while. And now they're contacting me as a junior or a senior. And I'm definitely interested. If you are not necessarily looking at the D1 or, you know, let's say you didn't decide you wanted to play college golf until you're a junior year in high school, it's not too soon to contact. Contact that junior year. Even if you're not good enough yet, coaches can follow you. And, you know, if you send me an email in your first email, I'm a junior, I graduate in 2022, I want to play college golf. Right now I'm averaging 78. Here's my resume. Here's my swing video. And I'm going to go, okay, 78, it's not where we need it to be, but I'll remember the name a little bit. And maybe in six months, I get another update. Coach, the last three tournaments I've played in, I shot 75, 68, 76, 72. And I'm thinking, wow, this kid's like improved a lot. They're shooting under par. They're shooting in the mid low seventies. This kid's trajectory is amazing. And then they get to senior year and they're now, you know, I see them improving it, and it makes me think, wow, they have a lot of potential or they have a, a lot of improvement still to come. And, you know, I like seeing that. So I would start, I would say the junior year though, junior year is the year that you definitely want to start contacting coaches. If a kid has strong interest in playing at a university, is it okay for them to let the coach know what tournaments they're going to be playing in? Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, that's, I ask for that. So kids, people, when recruits email me, I, hopefully they send me some attachments when they email me, but a lot of times they don't. And I'll respond back with, can you send me a swing video? Can you send me your resume? Can you send me your upcoming tournament list so that I can follow along? And then what they should do is coach. Imagine coaches have tons of recruits, right? And a lot of them, like me, like 40% of them do both teams, men and women. So they're very busy. You should email them your results. So after three tournaments, good or bad, and send them your results. I think the one thing I, I dislike the most is when I'll have a kid only email me when they play good. And it's like, I want to be there for the ups and downs as well. Like I said, when I go to watch a kid, I want to see how they respond to adversity. I also want to see how they respond to a bad tournament. So but yeah, you should you should be emailing coaches your upcoming tournament list, and then you should be checking in with them every so often, sending them your results. Oh, that's awesome. Are grades important for you when you're a coach looking at new recruits and new players? Of course, of course. Right away, grades, I mean, you can rule out whether they're going to be a college fit or not. You have to, <laughs> academically, you got to be in a certain level to, to succeed at college. And college is, you have to be much more self-motivated to, to take care of your classes and so I definitely look at grades and I will say being at a private university, everybody gets academic scholarship. And so if somebody's able to get more academic scholarship, good for them, right? So grades are absolutely important. Uh, you can't even be, you know, to a certain point, like I think 
to be eligible for the NCAA, you have to have, oh, they've really lessened the standard as of late, but I want to say like two point, shoot, I forget, 2.2 and, a, and like maybe like an 1100 SAT, something like 1080 SAT, something like that. So that's the minimum. But I will say, you know, your grades and your test scores say something about you. And it, it says, you know, shows how committed you are to your academics. I want kids that win in the classroom and and on the golf course. You winning in the classroom definitely says something about you. And, and I like that as a coach and I look for that. Here's a unique situation, right, with the whole COVID situation and what's going to happen here in the next school year is I think we're going to start to see some kids going to homeschool more and maybe they haven't already committed to a college yet. Do you think homeschooling would have some type of effect on their potential to get recruited to a university? Not necessarily. That's the that's the answer. Not necessarily. It could, but maybe not if you do it the right way. I've recruited homeschool kids. There's a way that, and I'm not that knowledgeable on how to do homeschooling, but when you homeschool, it gives you actually more time for your sport. And there's also a way to get certified through the NCAA so that when you come out of homeschooling, you're eligible. And I would encourage, you know, parents when they're enrolling in homeschooling, if they're focusing on getting their kids into the NCAA, they should, I'm sure they can do some research and I just haven't done it at the moment. So I couldn't really guide them, but you should do the research to make sure that when your kid does essentially graduate high school, even though it's homeschooled, that they're going to be eligible in the NCAA. And there's information out there about that, but I just haven't read it. So I can't speak on it, but I've recruited homeschool kids and They've all come to eligible. Usually their GPAs are really high and usually they're very smart. Obviously, we are all familiar with those junior golfers who will play international golf. It seems like year round, right? We're talking the cream of the crop <laughs> and they travel the world and play amateur golf before they even get to college. Some of those kids and I, we have one in our backyard here, here in Concord, who's, who's now on the LPGA, but they're all homeschooled so that they can be focused, focus on their golf. Homeschooling is definitely doable, but you just need to make sure that you do the research so that when they your kid graduates high school, quote unquote, that they're eligible for the NC2A. Right. And how important is a kid's personality when you're recruiting new players for your golf team? It's important. You know, I, I think too, as a golf coach, one of the main things I do is I manage people, right? I manage them in a way that so that the team is happy, they have a good experience. But in the end, like I'm, I am managing all those athletes and Somebody's personality, the way they are, the way they carry themselves, who they are, uh, is going to affect how much more little I have to work to to keep them in line. Or you don't want somebody around who's just angry all the time, or you know, real Debbie Downer <laughs> to say. So personality absolutely matters, and I think that's for anything that you do in this world because it's all about people, right? And people help people, and people that are successful usually have a lot of help getting there. And so your personality and the way you interact with people matters. So, and that definitely matters when it comes to getting recruited for sure. When you're talking to new recruits, do you ask them questions about the sports that they played growing up? Do you care if they play more than one sport or are you just looking at their results in golf and their personality and academics? I ask every recruit, did you play other sports? It's been my experience that the best golfers I get, and again, I'm at the D2 level, so most of the best players have gone to the D1s. And so I'm looking for people with potential a lot of times. And I always ask them, have you played other sports? Are you athletic? You know, I'm trying to find out, are they athletic? Do they know how to play games? And and honestly, if they were, you know, varsity in another sport or played a different sport at a high level, I think sports can translate. And Travis, I know you like to play sports. So I'm sure you would say the same thing with the, with the kids you're working with. The ones that are more athletic that have success in other sports, they come into golf and they have that. They know how to be successful. They know how to play games and they have that confidence level. And I truly believe that that translates. So I want them to have golf potential. I'd like them to have golf results and to play golf at a, at a good level. But 
I like athletic kids because they're going to be spatially aware and be able to do good things with their body. And, you know, that'll help them play golf. I couldn't agree more. If you're a parent of a kid who wants to play college golf, how can you best help the kid through the process to allow them to be able to play golf at a collegiate level? I think just make sure, just make sure you're there for them. You know, and I know a lot of parents are out there pushing their kids to go get the college scholarship, but if you have the kid that wants to do it, I think just encouraging and staying positive because <clears throat> there's going to be ups and downs in the recruiting process as well. Coaches are busy. They don't get back to every email. They try, um, but some coaches are overwhelmed. And so, you know, you may send out 30 emails to coaches and only hear back from a couple. Or, you know, you may be emailing one coach over and over and over and he finally he finally responds to you on your third or fourth email. And so obviously it's easy to lose motivation when you're not hearing back or you're not hearing back from the schools you want. Uh, just remember, there's an opportunity out there. And so I think parents need to stay positive with their kids. Parents should have the perspective that just because you didn't get into Clemson or Oklahoma State, <laughs> you know, just because that golf coach doesn't want you, there's a lot of opportunities out there and there's a lot of good experiences out there for you to stay positive. And I would say as a parent, really help them with the recruiting process. They don't realize coaches are, they realize coaches are people, but they see them as like really formal positions of power and Parents will have the perspective that that coach is just a person, can speak to them on their level. It's nice to have an adult with them along the way. I, I have seen kids try to do it all on their own, uh, and I sometimes wonder what they're, what they're thinking because <laughs> they don't have the perspective. And it seems to me the ones that come into college the happiest and make the best decisions are the parents are involved. And the parents are involved mainly just being supportive, not making the decisions for their kid, and helping the, their kid, you know, get to the university that matches the values that they have. And I say that, I said that earlier, but, you know, if you're going to college golf and yes, you want to compete, but, you know, being social is really more the motivation than being competitive, then you want to be at a university where that's the case. You know, and my universe and my, and my program, we're, we are social and we bond, we have team bonding, but, you know, some programs, it may just be competition all the time. And there may be very low team bonding, you know, that might not be important to that coach or that program. And so, and vice versa, if you're coming to a team where they spend time, you know, a lot of time off the golf course, maybe doing movie night or whatever. We don't do that on my team, but you know, we, you, maybe my, maybe my captains do, but if you go to university where they're doing that and you really want to be hardcore dedicated to golf and, you know, working out in the morning and at night and practice your day, you might be frustrated because they're doing so many off the course activities. So you want to make sure you go to a university and program where your values match that program's values. Well, Chris, that, that was awesome. This has been an amazing chat we've had today, and I think it's going to be so beneficial to so many parents and aspiring collegiate players. You've provided a wealth of knowledge for, for all of us just to learn what the process is for a kid to get into golf and also just the expectations and the mindset that these kids should have. And I think one thing that I took away from this chat is that the kids just need to be real. They need to be themselves and they need to show the coach who they really are. And I think that will stand out the most to the coach. And like you said, most of these coaches already know who they want to watch. They're already full on these players, right? And they want to see the ups and downs of these kids in tournaments. And that's the reality of golf. So I just can't thank you enough for coming on today and sharing your expertise, your knowledge, and your experience as a collegiate golf coach. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Travis. Thanks for the invite, and uh, I've enjoyed it, man. Nice talking with you. And there you have it, Chris Odinger, the head coach of Holy Names University for both the men's and women's golf team. What an experience in golf he's had from a young childhood, growing up in a competitive family, going on to play college golf for Cal State East Bay in California. 
And then eventually finding his passion is actually in coaching for university teams. He was able to go on and volunteer for a number of years at Cal State East Bay, learning a lot from his head coach at the time, which groomed him into finding a position at Holy Names University, being the head coach for both the men's and women's golf team. And he's had so much success already as a head coach. Today, he shared his wealth of knowledge for aspiring college players on the recruitment process, the things that you should be doing as a player and as a parent to help you find the best college for you. If you enjoy listening to our podcast and the information you got from this episode, do us a favor and continue to support us by hitting that subscribe button and giving us a five-star review. Your continued support will help us continue to grow and be able to interview some of the most experienced parents, coaches, and players in the golf industry to help you continue to raise your golfer to their full potential.